0: Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW, or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I speak to James Kwok. James is professor of law at Yukon School of Law and author of several books like 13 Bankers, together with Simon Johnson, as well as Economism, Bad Economics, and the Rise of Inequality, which is the main topic of our conversation today. In this book, James uh, discusses the impact of overly rigid and simplified economic models and what effects these have had on both economic policy but also public debates around economics and economic policy and points out what these get wrong. I hope you enjoy hello james quack hello nicholas very happy to have you on it's my pleasure thank you uh james you're the author of several books uh 13 bankers together with simon johnson where you discuss the political economy that i think it's safe to say generated the 2008 uh, great financial crisis in the united yes. states yeah. and later around the world additionally your book the baseline scenario um expanded on some of the intricacies um of what was going on there you followed this up in 2017 with the book economism a work that discusses the impact of um, simplistic economics 101 principles on policy debates That's and right. most recently in the book uh, take back our party you describe the impact that market ideology but also corporate influence influence has had on the policy platform of the democratic party so i would That's say right. there's at, at the very least like one through line in in your work right which is that the which is sort of the the power of ideology and simple ideas to to enable powerful elite interests to present their own self interest as, as public interest, I suppose. Um, and so I would want to start this conversation with economism. So maybe explain to our listeners, what is economism? And why is it so influential?
1: Okay, thank you. So I think you're right about the through line, and I'll just give a little bit of background. So in 2008, uh, my co-author Simon and I began blogging about the financial crisis, and a lot of what we did at the beginning was just trying to help readers understand what was going on, and also what were, what was at stake, and what were some of the interests involved in the various um, in the in the transactions that led up to the crisis and also into the, the attempts to deal with the crisis. And then we wrote 13 Bankers, which, as you say, was about the political economy that helped generate the crisis. And one of the things, one of the themes in, in 13 Bankers that was important was that, in our view, the financial sector had essentially captured um, Washington, had captured mm. not only the regulators, but uh, Congress as well and, and presidents to adopt their view of the world. and you know, sometimes we think of capture as happening for corrupt reasons. Uh, we like to think that you know the United States is not like some banana republic where businessmen mm. just bribe the, the bribe the politicians. And and what we what we noticed and what we wanted to talk about in thirteen bankers was that the capture in some ways happened ideologically. So mm. there was certainly the revolving door. So politicians certainly were able to make more money by becoming lobbyists after they left office. But but at the same time, we felt like a lot of people like in Washington, honestly believed that deregulating the financial markets would be only good for everybody. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the themes of 13 bankers. And that that theme, I, I think, did lead to economism. So economism takes this idea and applies it more broadly. And I define economism, you know, basically, as you said, as the, the simplistic use of a handful of models taken from economics 101 to explain virtually any kind of social or economic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And, and from on the basis of that very simplistic model to draw policy conclusions, and you can recognize economism. Whenever you read someone say it's just supply and demand, or it's just economics 101. Mm -hmm. So when you hear those phrases, basically you should, you should um, be on your guard (laughs) because, um, it's it's a uh, it's a very reductive way of seeing the world, and this is why I say that that uh, you know, economism, I call it an ideology, and I call it an ideology because it's a lens through which you can see the world, through which you it's a it's a frame in which you can put almost any phenomenon that you see in the world, and it almost invariably produces the same results, mm. namely that. There should be less regulation and lower taxes, and things will be just fine on their own. And these results tend to favor the same set of people, namely Mm -hmm. large businesses and the rich. So for those reasons, I I think it very well fits at least my conception of an ideology, which is a motivated worldview that people think is natural, but was actually produced by someone and serves some type of interest group.
0: If you uh, take a specific example, right, for example, the uh, debates around the minimum wage, which uh, you set up beautifully in the book, I think this is probably never going to end this debate around uh, that question. What are the predictions of the Econ 101 textbook um, analysis uh, of the question, would implementing a minimum wage, I don't know, be something desirable, right? Or what would be the outcome of that? Yeah, And which is, you know, I think the, the the funny thing about your book is that you really uh, do an amazing job of um, reconstructing how these debates usually go, right? Like someone will bring up a policy suggestion like that. And then, uh, you know, someone, so, someone will say, well, you know, that's a that's a cute idea, but, you know, you clearly don't <laughs> understand the economics, right? Blah, blah, blah. And then the conversation goes on from there. But yeah, w- w- what's going on here?
1: Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, as you say, that is exactly how these conversations go. And I think many of your listeners may have actually been in these kinds of conversations. They they tend to happen when someone has just taken economics for the first time. Uh, particularly when someone who maybe was center-left had some kind of progressive views, and then they take economics and then they think, oh, but well, you know, that was that won't work. So the minimum wage, I think, is 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 one of the simplest examples because the the econo- economism a conception of the minimum wage is drawn straight from the supply and demand model. So the basic idea is that uh, the labor market is a market in which employers, the demand for labor is the employers and the supply of labor is uh, is employees. And if you have no regulation at all, so no minimum wage, then the market will clear Uh, Mm -hmm. meaning that the the wages will settle at the point where exactly the same number, the number of people who want to work is exactly the same as the number of of jobs that employers want to fill. And because of that, you have, by definition, you have no unemployment, right? Because the Mm -hmm. people who don't have jobs are people who have decided they don't want to work. If you have a minimum wage, and if the minimum wage is above the you know, the, the market equilibrium uh, wage, what will happen is now more people want to work because you're offering more money. So more mm-hmm. people want to work, but employers don't want to hire as many people at that wage because the wage is, is too high for them. So actually employers want to hire fewer people. And then, so what happens is the people who have jobs are making a little bit more, but now you have unemployment because unemployment mm-hmm. is the, the gap between the the number of jobs that companies want to fill and the number of people who want who want jobs. So the the classic argument against the minimum wage is simply that it, it creates unemployment and as Milton Friedman said, it it therefore it it harms precisely the people it is intended it is intended to help. Um, and I think this is I, I, this in a sense is is the classic case because it, it can literally be drawn on a napkin mm. <laughs> and uh, and can be shown that way.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, this is exactly how pretty much all of these uh, economistic uh, arguments go across a whole bunch of different um, issue areas. And of course, you know, the the, the model makes perfect sense on its own. Yeah. However, it makes very strong assumptions about um, uh, yeah, price elasticities about how competitive the market actually is. And um Whole bunch of other assumptions, which are typically discussed. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, and even in in Econ 101, but the issue, obviously, is you know that reality is often a lot stranger than a model, and um, there's a lot of things that you have to take into account. And often, you know, the real world behaves qu- behaves quite differently. So, um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, um, so explain how then. How is it the case that people take this very simplistic view of the world and, um actually apply it to policy? And and, and what's the sort of um, negative outcome of that?
1: Yeah. Well, so there, there are a couple of things in your question I wanted to pick up on. So so one is, as you said, the real world is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, in Economics 101, the professors typically give the caveats. So this is one reason why I say Economics 101 in quotes, when someone says it's just Economics 101, is not actually the same as what people actually teach in first-year economics. The typical first-year economics professor um, is not a market fundamentalist mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, will tell students that this is a simplistic model. That said, the way economics is taught in virtually every college in this country and in, in virtually every major textbook is the same. They mm-hmm. all start essentially with the idea that people are rational utility maximizers and that and then they start with these uh, supply and demand, com- the competitive market model with the supply curve and the demand curve, and I think that even with the caveats, this has a very strong impact on students. In part because we all know students don't remember everything they're taught; they tend to remember <laughs> the simplest things and the things they are tested on. And they end up being in economics 101. They end up being tested on applying the supply and demand model. They don't end up getting tested on the caveats because those are hard to hard to quantify. Um, so i'll I'll get back to to your question eventually but uh this is also why i say economism is not the same as economics because the supply and demand model is is 150 years old you're not Mm -hmm. going to get a job as an economics professor talking about how the supply and demand for a simple commodity works you get a job as an economics professor by either developing more sophisticated models that reflect things that happen in the real world or by doing empirical, more and more by doing empirical research to test models. I and mean, this is every, any, to get a job as an economist today, you have to be able to do this. And so the exciting work in the field of the minimum wage is the application of um, sophisticated, not just statistical techniques, but also methods for gathering data mm-hmm. to try to answer this question. And to just, you know, to jump ahead to the answer, Skip ahead to the answer. The leading expert in this field is Aaron Dubey. He's a professor at, at UMass in the same town I'm, I'm in now. And the evidence seems to show that for modest increases in the minimum wage, the effect on employment is, is essentially zero or very small. Mm-hmm. And when you think about overall benefits, it's pretty clearly outweighed by the fact that the people with jobs are now making more money. So if you think about the ability of a minimum of a higher minimum wage to reduce poverty it's pretty clear that that a higher minimum wage at least in the wages we're talking about you know 10 dollars 15 um, would would increase would reduce poverty and would not have much of an impact on employment but you know f- to finally get back to your question when it comes to a you know New York Times op-ed article or mm-hmm. uh the talking point that a politician makes on a sunday news show um, the supply and demand model is just much more compelling than the empirical research for two reasons one is it's simple and easy to communicate um you know basically if i'm a politician against the minimum wage what do i say i say well you know walmart has to make a profit and if you force walmart to pay fifteen dollars an hour for the workers they're not going to be able to make a profit, so they're just going to close the store, right? Mm. It's it's pretty easy uh, for people to understand. Um, and even though that is probably not true, and we can talk about why that's not true true later. Um, so I think that that's why economism plays such a – that's one reason economism plays an important role in policy debates. Another reason, I probably should have said this first, is that – you know, when we think about the minimum wage debate, there are basically, you know, interest groups involved here. On the one Mm -hmm. hand, you have basically, uh, you know, restaurants and retail. These are the industries that employ actually the most people in the United States and pay the least or just about the least. And on the other hand, you you have workers. And so the restaurant industry has, they have trade associations, they have lobbying groups, and so on. And they want to make a public case against the minimum wage. And they don't want to say, we don't like the minimum wage because it would we'd have to give more of our profits to labor, right? right. And this is just the split between capital and labor. So instead, they they fasten on to the arguments of economists and then say, actually, a higher minimum wage is bad for workers. They don't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're being paternalistic. We actually care about workers. So I think it's influential because it is so, it's so easily and so well supports the interests of people who have a... Uh, you know, a vested economic interest in paying the workers as little as possible.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I th- what, what I keep discovering in casual conversations with people that are, um, let's say, outside of academia, is that when they think of economics that, I mean, you, you I think, make a very good case that, you know, economics as an, uh, as an academic discipline is very different from economism. That being yeah. said, I'm not sure that's really the case in the public imagination. I think um, you're right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially what I always discover is that people almost, the, the idea of economics and being a Republican in, in the United States especially is, is almost the same thing, which is kind of striking <laughs> to me. But because, I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, opposition to minimum wages, uh, low tax rates on top, top incomes, things like that policy suggestions that, that that come out of um, very simplistic applications of Econ 101, RB have, or at least historically, I suppose, have been picked up by the Republican Party. What's the difference, though, in, in, in your view? Has economism uh, been especially attractive to the Republican Party? Okay,
1: so historically, I think, beginning in the 1950s, economism was very useful to the, to the Republican Party because in the 1950s, um, kind of when my book starts, this was a period of what sometimes is called the, the New Deal consensus. So mm-hmm. not only most politicians, but actually many lar- the heads of many large corporations thought that we should have something perhaps similar to a corporatist society in which um, it was the responsibility of big businesses to make sure that workers were well treated, they had job security, they had pensions and so on. And there was an acceptance that the New Deal had happened and that it was here to stay. And, you know, the best the best example of this is probably President Eisenhower. So in the 1950s, the Republican Party essentially embraced, embraced is too strong a word. Um, they acquiesced in the idea that we would have Social Security, we would have labor unions, we would have pensions, we would have things like that. And there was always, you know, there was always a hardcore of kind of, libertarian conservative free market fundamentalists. The ideas of economism served them very well because they provided, you know, an intellectual framework to say that no, actually lower taxes, lower regulations, and relying on markets are better for society as a whole right because Mm -hmm. again as i said before you can't simply say i don't want to give as much money to my workers right (laughs) you you have to have an argument that this is better for them this is for society and so in the beginning of the 1950s the ideas of people like milton friedman and and friedrich hayek these ideas that essentially we should let the market alone and that would produce Mm -hmm. optimal outcomes were taken up by a network of think, think tanks and foundations And this became one of the central themes of, you know, what sometimes we call the conservative revolution, right? Because the conservatives in 1950 were way out in the wilderness. No one thought they would ever really be a a significant force in American politics. Again, they've dominated the agenda now for the past, past four decades. Um, It's not the only, only theme. Obviously Christian conservatism was another one. Anti-communism was a big one for many decades, but in some ways, I think this was in a sense, the unifying, the unifying theme, because everybody was, Across the entire coalition—the gun rights people, the anti-abortion people, the anti-communists—they were all in favor of low taxes. They were all in favor of of minimal domestic regulation. Even the ones who were in favor of like a very powerful American state overseas were in favor of, mm. of small government uh, internally. And so, I think the Republican Party in the let's say the Reagan Bush years was very closely associated. Or what I would say is that economism was essentially their economic policy. Mm. Um, I think this has changed uh with President Trump, as so many things have changed with President Trump. Um, I mean, frankly, I think economic issues have, have become less central to the identity Agreed. of the Republican Party. The economists, the arguments of economism are still used to criticize democratic policies, obviously. So you see that right now, you know, arguments mm-hmm. about, about taxing the rich and so on. Um, but as far as the identity of the party, it's that has shifted. Yeah. And in a strange way, I think you are more likely to hear the kinds of arguments that I talk about in economism now, essentially from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, than from the Republican Party. And I say that not because the Republican Party—they still believe in low taxes and low regulation. It's just—it's just so taken for granted. It, yeah. It's no longer part of their kind of their platform so much. Um, what you see in the Democrat. Now, the Democratic side, as has been amply chronicled the past couple of years, is, is the split between you know, essentially the, the Clinton-Obama wing of the party, mm-hmm. which is basically moderate technocrats mm-hmm. who, who believe that we shouldn't raise taxes too much and so on, and, and the, the, you know, the Warren Sanders wing of people who want to have something closer to uh, a New Deal kind of, kind of party identity.
0: Yeah, so that's um, I think uh, you, you this anti-New Deal movement. Yeah, v- very much I think is is informed by what you're describing. The, the curious thing, though, um, that you go into a significantly more detail in in the Take Back Our Party book is this development of the Democratic Party, as you describe, away from one that focuses on workers and that is much more focused on. I don't know. I'm I'm supposed yes. like progressivism, and I'm, I'm not sure what it really is that they're focusing on now, but certainly I think it's hard to argue against the idea that there's an embrace of um, economic positions that were much stronger associated with the Republican Party before that. So so when does that transition happen and maybe speculate as to why? Yeah,
1: well, I think that the, the transition began, you know, probably in the late 1970s, 1980s, and so the transition we're talking about is a transition from a party that was, at least on economic issues, was associated with basically domestic entitlement programs, you know, social security, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, was associated with unions and the working mm-hmm. class very strongly, um, to a party now that I think, I think the, obviously there's a, there's a fight going on right now. But up certainly up to Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016, a party that was whose economic philosophy is essentially that for the most part we should rely on markets to, mm-hmm. to provide good things for us. And the Democratic, the Clintons were never as you know fundamentalist as the Republicans. Like right? they never said essentially we should just like slash taxes as low as possible and eliminate regulations and, mm-hmm. and everything will be fine. Um, so as I described in the book. I think the, the, the Democrats adopted this idea that, you know, you might call it economism light, or you might, or it's essentially what moderate Republicans used to think back when there were mm. moderate Republicans that that for the most part, free enterprise uh, is the way to develop prosperity, and but it doesn't always produce perfect outcomes. So at the margins, we should have regulations for example, on, you know, environmental pollution, I think moderate Republicans used to be in favor of that. And we should have some modest degree of of a safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, because some people will be left behind by the market economy. That was, I would say, you know, the, the Rockefeller Republican position of the 1960s. And that's what the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party migrated toward uh, by the 1990s. Now to the question of, of why this happened, I think, There are a couple of explanations. One is simply, I think the Democrats were traumatized by the losses of 1980 and 1984. And this is when I kind of started becoming aware of politics. And in 1980 and 1984, and also 1988, presidents Reagan and Bush won largely by demonizing the Democrats as tax and spend liberals. Mm. Uh, also as being soft on crime, soft on national defense, and so on, but essentially as a kind of uh, misguided, soft-hearted, soft-headed um, party that cared more about you know, helping poor people than about the economy. Mm. And that attack was very successful. And in response, I think that the new generation of leaders who came to dominate the Democratic Party, best symbolized by Bill Clinton, they ran as, as fast as they could away from the identity of, of being you know, pro-criminal defendant, pro-welfare recipient, and so on. And they said, essentially, we want an image of the Democrats as being responsible in, on economic issues, strong on national defense, anti-crime, and so on. Uh, I mean, essentially, basically, they, they said, we're just going to move closer to the Republicans right. and, on, on all uh, measures. And I think, so that was the first phase. And then I think what happened was that, in a sense, the Republican Party just kept getting crazier and crazier. Just to take you know, the, the relatively boring issue of the national debt, Republicans long had this reputation for, be, for being fisc- so-called fiscally responsible, right? So for not spending too much, and, and Democrats had a reputation for, for spending too much. In, act- in practice, it's completely flipped, right? So if you compare Reagan... To Clinton, for example, Um, uh, you know, Clinton reduced deficits so he can increase them and so on. The second Bush increased deficits. So Republicans became more and more tied to their extreme ideology. And the Democrats kind of moved into the gap and became Hmm. and positioned themselves as the, we are the responsible people who know how to manage an economy. We know that. You know, you can't spend too much money. We know that you can't raise taxes too high. Um, and the identity became one, the one that we had through 2016, which is that of kind of responsible moderate technocrats. And I think- democratic governance. Yeah, exactly. Especially... And I, I think we adopted this identity partly in opposition to the increasing craziness we saw on the Republican side. And the the political bet was- that voters will go with kind of the mature, responsible people and not the crazies. And that bet I think has backfired. <laughs> because of, mm. and I mean to 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 switch I mean to to summarize very very briefly, um, in an era of rising inequality when more and more people are feeling left behind economically um the argument that we're making responsible choices and doing the best we can is just not very compelling compared to someone who is you know demonizing foreigners minorities
0: (laughs) yeah right um but but that that's the big question now so how come that economism as a soft ideology that is accompanying um, other bigger ideologies on the left and the right. Uh, how is, wh- why is it the case that it now seems to be somewhat exhausted, right? You mentioned that 2016 uh, with uh, Trump's election, definitely a bit of a rupture, but we definitely also see now you know, uh, the signs of a split within the Democratic Party as well, um, where there's a lot of uh, very, very different um, economic ideas being floated. But what it's worth, I think uh, academic economics in the United States has also changed dramatically and, and focused a lot more on empirical work. There's a lot more uh, heterodox ideas uh, out there as well. So the question now is, is this a good development or is this a positive uh, direction? Because um, a lot of it does appear to be slightly unproductive, uh, seems to be going to some more of a populist direction. Um, wh- what's, your, what's your judgment here?
1: So it's a complicated question. I mean, I think that, you know, I think on balance, obviously I'm critical of economism as a way of interpreting the world and making policy choices. And so in that sense, I think that it's exhaustion. And I agree with you that it it seems to be becoming exhausted. So in that sense, I think that's a good thing. Uh, Just to step back by just what we mean by exhausted, I think basically um, it is, it is, certain, it is certainly much less the defining frame of Republican economic policy than it mm-hmm. was under the Bushes, for example. Right? I mean, now we talk about beating our trade partners, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and I think that to the extent that that economism light has for a while was predominant in the Democratic Party, that is obviously being contested today. So in that sense I think right, it's being exhausted um, so I would say you know on balance is it is it, is it good or bad I mean to, to take the easy way out of this question um, you know I'm a I'm a Warren Sanders person mm-hmm. and I think that you know put simply I think a lot what a lot of the Warren Sanders wing believes is that you know the central justification for economic policies based on economism, but even Democratic Party economic policies, going back to Clinton, the first Clinton, was that it will make the pie bigger, Mm. right? So the argument is, sure, you can tax the rich more and you can redistribute to the poor, but then that reduces the incentives to save and to work and to start companies, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, like the pie won't be as big, right? So Mm -hmm. this is just the so-called what is it? Equity versus efficiency trade off And I think that a lot of you know a lot of people on the left, especially young people, now just think that the making the pie bigger is the wrong thing to focus on. And right. Climate change is the most obvious example of this. Right? I mean, between a livable planet and a bigger pie, right? We would all take a livable planet. And it it seems increasingly it seems increasingly evident that we can't have both. <laughs> Um, but it's not just climate change. It's, you know, it's just poverty and insecurity and the cost of higher education and the cost of healthcare and so on. I think that, you know, we've, we've gone through, I don't want to sound too grandiose here, you know, but we've gone through a few centuries in the West in which making the pie bigger, generally speaking, helped most people in the long Mm -hmm. term. Lots of people got hurt in the short term. There's no question about that. I think, you know, people who worked in Manchester in the 1840s were, know if you look at like lifespans and things they were they were less well off than people who worked on the farm in in the 18th century Uh, but in general you know people lost their jobs to automation and their children got better jobs right and i think that you know whether i think that either that time is coming to an end or if not many people are questioning that Orientation of society, the orientation towards a bigger pie, right? So, and it's probably just because inequality is just off the charts. I mean, it's 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 reached unprecedented levels in in uh, in modern history. So, so when you tell when you tell people in their twenties, we can't cut back on fossil fuel emissions because it'll hurt em- economic growth, and we can't tax rich people to pay for free college because it'll hurt economic growth. I think they just say, I don't care at this point. And I think they're right, mm. <laughs> frankly. So so anyway, the easy way out is to say that I think this reflects a reorienting of priorities, um, which at least on my side is good. Now, I mean, to, to take the, the flip side of the question, though, and I, I have not thought about this before, but I guess one could argue, and I think this is implicitly what you're hinting at, one could argue that a focus on kind of textbook economic policies is a bit of a constraint on mm-hmm. the Republican Party. Um, you know, for example, the Republican Party of the Bushes, you know, was was anti-immigrant in one sense, but was not anti-foreign countries kind of on principle <laughs> the way you know, the way Donald Trump is because they were in favor of free trade and they believed yeah. in internationalism, right, in a way that led Donald Trump uh does does not um so business elites in a sense or maybe another way to put it is as long as business elites controlled the republican party there was a limit to how bad it could become because business elites you know they want to have a well-educated workforce they want to have stability all these things and and now that they've lost control of the republican party who knows what could happen So yes, that is obviously worrisome, and you know, it's like you know, I don't know. This reminds me a a little bit. I don't mean to. This is an unfair comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of the people who say, "Well, if Mitt Romney had won the election, Trump would never have happened."
0: Yeah, well, probably (laughs) not. True.
1: I mean, it is true, but but is that would even in retrospect, is that a reason to vote for Romney over Obama? I don't know. Oh,
0: oh, see, I see. Um, Because
1: because he would have been reelected in twenty sixteen or.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say. Um, but I mean, your, your point as to uh, the, the corrective for the Republican Party, I think one important element here is that probably a lot of these considerations are at least to some extent dependent on uh, the technological um, circumstances. right? So I mean, uh, whether or not people really uh, require a sufficiently educated workforce en masse depends on what the technological production regime is um so, so in that sense that may be changing especially with automation as you sort of um substitute labor more and more for capital in uh, across industries um
1: capital for labor yeah that, that's a very that's a very sorry good point. Yeah, capital for labor yeah that's a very good point i mean i do think that um i mean again this is this is well outside the scope of of the book economism but i think that. You know, our economic model for centuries has been that when people are displaced by automation, they may be too old to retrain, but their Mm -hmm. children will get better jobs because we'll find something higher value for the humans to do. And I think an increasing number of people, no one can predict the future on this aspect, I think an increasing number of people are worried that we are reaching the point when we will no longer find better things for the humans to do. Simply because the machines can do can do so much, and that would mean that we need to figure out a way to organize a society in which many people will not be able to find decent jobs because the machines are, are better. Um, and so, I think that is that is one of the reasons I think for the uh, the increasing attraction attraction of the left. On the right, I think um, you know as you said, yeah, if you know business elites if capitalists can succeed with a very small highly trained highly skilled workforce and then kind of a vast army either either machines or a vast army of unskilled labor um, then and this is you know this is well outside my expertise but that that looks very different from, kind of the assumptions of the 1950s right oh, the assumptions of the 1950s yeah. being that if you want to be a successful corporation you have to keep your workers happy um, right. there's a certain kind of stability um, that you need you need to you need to maintain a certain kind of social stability um, and if that's no longer the case then that opens you know that certainly opens the um, opens the floodgates to different kinds of political or social organizations
0: yeah absolutely um, I think you're exactly right that We're moving into politically relatively, I don't want to say only complicated, it's also interesting, exciting and uh, challenging. I don't really share this fear of uh, there not really being much for people to do anymore, because it seems to me that you know, all these challenges need someone to find a solution. So there's at least, you know, one job. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, there's also questions of like how important is trade really going to be as, you know, a lot of developed economies move stronger and stronger into um, a service economy, right? And things like that. So, yeah. Um, additionally, uh, right, like issues like um, a move towards clean energy systems. However, yeah, paired with this idea that, you know, people may not just be as interested in economic growth uh, per se, which I'm personally slightly worried about the political implications of that as well. Because ultimately, the question is, you know, through what um, institutions are these uh, changes are going to be um, channeled, deliberated. And um, one issue is that, as you're describing um, in several pieces of your work, right, that the lack of a coherent, you know labor movement in the united states which then is going to be probably compounded by the issue of of increasing automation and and the sort of lack of proper organization within a service economy but i mean that's really beyond the scope of of this conversation which means that we definitely have to have you back on the podcast at some point to discuss this um yeah so james quark thank you so much for being part of the podcast it's been a pleasure thanks a lot nicholas Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.